All right, it is my great joy to introduce our um, speaker who will be giving our message today, Joel White, who's here with his beautiful wife, Tatiana. Um, Joel is a doctorate professor of New Testament and director of international partnerships at the Gießen School of Theology in Germany. They serve with the Greater Europe Mission. Um, we have heard him over the years speak, and so um, he is, yeah, we're delighted to have him come up again this year. He provides an evangelical alternative to um, liberal theological education. I had to wrote that, write that down. That's their, their vision, and I think you have told us before about 4% of um, Germany attends regularly a worship service. So their, their mission is to provide sound theology and kind of awakening of the church in Germany. So our Marquette native born in the Congo, come on up. <laughs> It's great to be with you uh, again today and to be back in the Upper Peninsula a little longer this time. You may see us at other times. Usually I breeze in and speak and get out of town quickly, but uh, we're uh, up for the summer in and out and, and uh, hope to be back to worship with you again. Before I start um, with the sermon, I want to give you just a brief update on uh, what's happening. Uh, Tatiana, uh, my wife, is here with me. And we are in, as was said, in Gießen, Germany, uh, with the mission of training pastors uh, there. Uh, there's really great things to report from our um, seminary. If you've gotten our newsletters, you've heard about that. We've really experienced a lot of great growth um, in numbers. Um, we are actually now, suddenly, um, the largest uh, uh, theological training institution in Germany. That includes even the university theological faculties. The, the church and Christianity has imploded to the extent that maybe half a dozen uh, show up, uh, new students every year at some of the major theological faculties in Germany. We have 60 new students in the fall and about a total of uh, 200. And because of that, we had to build a brand new building which is wonderful. It's, uh, we've moved in last year, and it's just a great place. We have room, especially we have some room for students to hang out, a little cafe or a couple other areas, which we didn't have before. And that's been amazing to see students who used to just hurry off after classes because there was nowhere to meet, especially in the winter that everybody was gone. Now they're hanging out, and I'll often stop in the cafe on my way out and see who's there and chat. And that's so important. And now we have those spaces for our students. And the wonderful thing is this building was paid for by the time it was completed. $10 million was raised um, to do that. And um, it's just been amazing to see. We are just amazed at what God has done. Uh, also want to tell you just a bit about my, our family. We've had some growth there too. Here's Tatiana, who got to hold our newest granddaughter. She was born 10 days ago. Uh, I was already in the U.S., and she didn't expect to, be, to have that privilege because the granddaughter was two weeks early, so that was wonderful. And then our daughter, Emma, is holding Lani as well, the little granddaughter. Up above there, you, her, you see Adrian and his wife, Laura, and then Helena, our daughter, and uh, two grandsons, uh, Isaiah and William. Uh, and they all live amazingly real close. We never expected that to happen. For, so for as long as it lasts, we are really enjoying that. 
that's all uh, as far as an update. I want to um, share with you uh, from the uh, letter of Philemon today. Um, that has a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm writing a commentary on uh, Philemon, so I thought what better to share than something I'm really digging into myself very uh, thoroughly. And it also occurred to me, I don't know that I ever heard a sermon on Philemon when I was growing up. Um, I remember reading it because I thought, oh, that's a book I can read in one in five minutes, you know, as opposed to Isaiah or something where you never quite get done. Um, and uh, but never a sermon on it. So that's what uh, motivated me to um, choose this text as well. Um, we'll read the whole letter uh, together. And in our church, we often stand when we read the scriptures. Would you do that with me? And I'll read the text for us then. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for, the, for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, my brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So I've titled this um, sermon, What 
is freedom for? As we'll see, this text has a lot to do with a question about this slave named Onesimus and whether he should become a free man. And um, this is an appropriate time to speak on such a subject because uh, we've just celebrated the 4th of July. Um, and it was great to be back. Uh, I don't often get to celebrate the 4th of July in the U.S. Our semester goes into July, and this time we were able to enjoy some fireworks and all of that. Um, of course, it's the celebration of the Declaration of Independence, of our freedom. We are the land of the free. This yearning for freedom was the driving force behind the Revolutionary War and extending it to blacks was the reason for the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. Our nation defines itself in terms of freedom in a way that not many other countries do. But we have a very, um, let's say, Western idea of what freedom is all about. Freedom in the modern Western world, I think we would say, uh, could say, uh, comes down to, if you ask someone, I can do exactly what I want. That's what it means to be free. But that only gets you so far. You know, when we think about it, when I think about Americans and our uh, understanding of freedom, I think we can tell everybody um, what we are free from, right? We say we're free from the monarchy. That was the whole reason for the Revolutionary War. Uh, we're free from communism. We've, we're free from slavery, those things. We can even tell you what we are free to do. We are free to vote. Uh, we're free to bear arms. We're free to express our religious beliefs in public. We know all those things. But when it comes to the question, what are you free for, I think many of us draw a blank, or many Americans would. We don't think of it in those terms. What does our freedom serve? What purpose? What goal is it designed to achieve? These are the questions the Bible would ask. And I think the fact that we don't ask those question, questions in our culture um, results in a real lack of purpose. Freedom to do whatever you like has produced, I think you'll agree with me, a society that barely functions anymore. It means you can, among other things, many have the idea I can go into a supermarket and start shooting. Things like that. Because of this lack of understanding of what the purpose of freedom is all about. And so we want to look at this letter of, uh, to Philemon from Paul in order to uh, ask that question. What is freedom for? Now, the main characters in this letter um, are Paul and uh, Philemon and Onesimus. When we ask, why did Paul write this letter? Well, he wants to address a very specific situation. And here's what we know about that situation from the letter itself and from some of the background information that we have. Philemon was a wealthy man. He lives in Colossae, uh, which is about 100 miles um, east of Ephesus um, in what is now southwest Turkey. Um, he was rich enough to own a large house, one that could com accommodate the church, probably 20, 30 people for a service. And he owned at least one slave. Onesimus. Verse 16 makes it clear that he's his slave. Philemon was most likely, likely a merchant 
who sold his wares, probably wool, uh, Colossian wool was valued all over that area of the world. And so he went around selling his wool and he met Paul uh, on those journeys. We know he didn't meet him in Colossae because Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, I've never been there, I haven't met you face to face. So Philemon has gone on some trip, maybe to Ephesus, maybe Pisidian Antioch to the east, and he's heard Paul preach, and he's struck by the message of the gospel, and he becomes a believer in Jesus. Now, at the time of the letter, um, he's, uh, by that time, one of the most important leaders in the church in Colossae, and obviously a friend of Paul's. We also learn from this letter that Paul is a prisoner as he's writing these, this letter. He says it several times in verse 1, in verses 9 and 10, and verse 23. He is probably under house arrest. That's more the likely scenario for someone in his situation. But he doesn't tell us where. Maybe it was Rome, maybe Ephesus. That's not really so important for our purposes today. And during this period of incarceration, Onesimus shows up at his uh, door. Onesimus is a slave owned by Philemon, and we, uh, it seems that he has uh, wronged Philemon in some way, probably stolen uh, some money or something valuable. At least that's what verse 18 seems to imply, is if he has caused you any um, harm in any way, I'll pay for it, Paul says. So he runs off and he finds his way to, to Paul, the slave Onesimus. Probably he intentionally sought out Paul. Maybe he heard where Paul was and he went there because there's this um, convention in Roman law that uh, a slave who's being mistreated can go to a friend of the owner and appeal to him to intercede. Um, and that maybe explains why uh, Onesimus comes to Paul um, and um, in any case, uh, once he's there, then Paul, who does this all the time, shares the gospel with him, and Onesimus is converted, becomes a believer in Jesus. And Paul loves Onesimus. He's clearly very fond of him. So he sends Onesimus back to, with a letter to Philemon, and he explains to Philemon that he wants to keep Onesimus as a part of his team. Paul had this team of, like, we call them probably apprentice missionaries or church planters with him. And he wanted Onesimus to be on that team. He clearly saw some potential there. So he, he sends him back with this letter and he says um, he, he wants uh, Philemon to let him be a part of that team. What isn't clear, and this is interesting, is whether he wants Paul uh, Philemon to release Onesimus from slavery. Does he want... Philemon to set Onesimus free. Uh, New Testament scholars are actually very divided on that subject. I think he does, and I'll tell you why, but first we need to say about a question about why this is not clear in the letter, um, and that has to do with the shape of Paul's rhetoric here in this uh, small letter. Rhetoric is nothing more than the style of communication you use, which varies across a lot of cultures, um, so that let's say you have some matter you want to discuss with someone here, a business deal in this area, you might 
engage in a little spot, small talk. What about those Packers? They're doing great. And then you get down to business, right? Um, Germans are very direct, so they're not, if they have any small talk, it's going to come after uh, and not before. You begin with what you're saying. If you're in Africa someplace, you're going to have to inquire about how's your family doing uh, and list off all the relatives, and then you get down to um, the business deal. Um, and this kind of rhetoric um, uh, is different, as I said, across cultures. There's very direct cultures that say things clearly and directly, and there's cultures that are indirect. Germans are typically very direct. They say what they think and very clearly without a lot of subtext. Um, and this might surprise you. Um, my wife's Austrian, Tatiana, and um, Austrians are not that way at all, actually. They're very indirect. They say things indirectly. So when we moved to Germany after being in Austria, um, to give you one example of a situation, we early on were invited to dinner, and Tatiana is sitting next to someone, and uh, the dinner rolls are on the other side of that person. So Tatiana, being a good Austrian, says to this person sitting next to her, um, uh, "Do you want some dinner rolls?" Uh, which every Austrian knows is a way of saying, "I would like one," right? But this is a German who just said, no, thank you. So poor Tatiana, did you ever get a role? I'm not sure. But those are the kind of things that vary from culture um, to culture. Why does Paul not speak plainly here? Why is he so indirect? Is that just a question of the culture in general? I don't think so, because when we read his other letters... Paul's pretty clear on what he wants. He'll write the Corinthians and say, I've made this determination. This should happen here. If you don't agree, then the Lord will help you or we'll throw you out of the church, that kind of thing. Yeah? He's not shy about saying what he means. But here, suddenly, the rhetoric is pretty opaque. It's not hard to, not easy to figure out what he wants. Why would he choose to do that? Well, we have to know a couple things about the ancient world. One is that it's an honor-shame kind of culture. That means, in that kind of culture, that you were expected to show deference to your social superiors, anybody above you on the social scale. You show respect to your equals, and you have to be benevolent and kind to those below you on the social scale. And everything is measured in these cultures in the honor, in terms of the honor you accrue or the shame you experience if you're slighted in some manner. Now let's remember that Paul and Philemon are social equals. And also remember that Paul's letter is being read in the church. It's addressed not only to Philemon, but also to Aphia and Aristarchus, those might be, Archippus, those might be his wife and son, and the whole church. So it's being read in front of the whole church. Now, think what would happen if Paul said, I, I want, this is what I want you to do. You have to release this slave. Um, Paul says that he could have done that, but he doesn't want to. If he had done that, he would have set up what economists call a zero-sum game. A game, an, a situation where one person wins entirely and the other person loses entirely. Flipping a coin is an example of that. You win or you lose, right? So if Paul had done that, then he would have put Philemon in a situation where if he had 
Paul said, I'm commanding you to do this, it would have shamed him in the front of the whole congregation to uh, accede to that wish. Um, and if he had decided, no, I refuse, then it would have caused all sorts of conflict between him and Paul and the entire church. So uh, Paul wa wants to avoid that kind of outcome, so he chooses a different strategy. He puts the ball in Philemon's court. He strongly hints at what he wants, but he lets Philemon make the decision. And the effect is that everybody wins if, Paul makes, if Philemon makes the right decision, right? Um, a Philemon is shown to be this wise and generous leader. Paul has been a counselor, very wise. Onesimus obviously wins. And the church wins because there's more cohesion and harmony. Um, by the way, again, this, this is just free for all you in leadership here. Uh, churches get into trouble, I think, all the time because they get in these one uh, zero-sum games where it comes down to I win and you lose. That may have to, have to happen if somebody comes in here and starts preaching heresy. Then you want a zero-sum game. You say, get rid of this guy. But if we're talking about the color of the carpets or the songs we sing, there are ways to make sure that everybody wins something. That's just wise leadership. Again, that's just for free for you in leadership here. We, we can learn these kind of lessons from um, Philemon as well. Another question we have to ask is, but wait a minute. Joel, you're, we're talking about slavery here. Who cares whether Philemon's honor is intact? Um, Paul should have just beat him into shameful submission. That's what Americans do when it comes to matters of social justice, right? You get shamed on social media until you conform. Um, and it's important that we realize we have a different conception or we're dealing with a different phenomenon when we talk about slavery in the ancient world than what we understand slavery uh, to be. First of all, slavery in the ancient world was not race-based. It had nothing to do with the color of your skin. Um, secondly, being free wasn't all that it's cut out to be often. Remember, there was no safe, so, uh, safety net. And people were living, especially freed people on the lower end of the spectrum, economic scale, were living hand to mouth, literally not knowing how long they would survive. So you had to weigh, okay, I get my meals and a place to live, uh, but I'm unfree or uh, freedom, uh, and I don't know how long I'll survive. Uh, thirdly, uh, even if you were set free, you were still obligated to your master. You had to still work for him for a long period of time to show your debt of obligation and honor him again. And so, and you often could expect manumission after working for 20 years or so. Don't get me wrong, slavery is evil, always, and many slaves in the ancient world were horribly abused. But a house slave like Onesimus with a benevolent master might be better off than a freedman. And in that, because of that, doctors and teachers, accountants often chose to become slaves uh, for that reason. So that's all going on in the background. That leads now to the question, does Paul want, what does Paul want? I believe he wants Onesimus to be um, set free. But again, we can't read it off the surface of the text. It's a little below the text. It doesn't come through in the rhetoric. But I think it does come through 
in the theology, and especially in one very important feature, which you have probably missed. In verse 16, Paul says that Philemon should receive Onesimus as a beloved brother. And we are used to calling fellow believers brothers and sisters, even though they are not really our biological siblings. That was very uncommon in the ancient world. Even Jews didn't do that, um, call people who were not their real brother or sister by the, those terms. Paul more or less invented this uh, concept that the f- church is a family and we are brothers and sisters. And Paul uses the language of family to describe believers more than any other New Testament writer. And he does so more frequently in this letter relative to its size than any other letter. He says, Timothy is our brother, brother, verse 1. Aphia is our sister, verse 2. Philemon is Paul's brother, verse 7 and 20. Onesimus is my child, verse 10. These are not just platitudes. Paul really believes this. And we can see that at one point, one part of this letter that disturbs everyone who thinks about it long enough. Um, And that's verse 19 where Paul says, okay, if he harmed you, I can pay it back for you. But by the way, you owe me your very life. If, If it wasn't for me, you'd be burning in hell, basically. So just remember that. And most people find that manipulative. You have to admit it, right? There is one concept, even in the Western world, where you can get away with that kind of pressure. And that's parents, right? Family, who will say, listen, I'm your parents. We're your parents. We raised you. We have a right to tell you something. And you will find it uncomfortable. We're wise to not use that too much (laughs) uh, because it is um, a problem. But you can do that in families. And you get away with saying a little bit more like that. So Paul, even here, is acting like we are really family, and I can tell you things that you don't want to hear. I'm responsible for you and your faith, so I have a right to tell you things. What are the implications of all this? If Philemon really would begin to view Onesimus as a brother, that's what Paul says, don't think of him anymore as a slave, Our translation says bondservant, but it really should be slave. It's not an indentured servant or something like that. But think of him as a beloved brother. Receive him as a beloved brother, as a member of the family. And that is an amazing assertion with all sorts of implications. You see, no one, not even the dreaded Romans, enslaved their siblings. All the moral philosophers in the ancient world agreed that if a family member became a slave, you should do everything you can to help them gain their freedom. So Philemon can't receive Onesimus as a beloved brother and continue to keep him as a slave. You know, it it bothers many people when we read the New Testament. They say, why did Paul not just call for the abolition of slavery. There's actually a good historical reason for that. No one had ever thought that 
uh, that thought before, that you could abolish slavery in the ancient world. It only becomes an issue in the modern age where people think, began to, on the basis of Christian teaching, understand that everyone is equal before God. Uh, in the ancient world, it was just part of the architecture, so to speak, and literally no one ever proposed, let's get rid of slavery. Yeah? Not even the slaves who revolted wanted that, Spartacus and those people. They just wanted to be free and probably have their own slaves later on. So Paul um, is part of his culture and, and doesn't come to that point, but he does something which is more effective in the long run. He undermines the logic of slavery because you cannot keep a brother as a slave. It just doesn't work. Admittedly, it took a long time before the church began to understand the implications of that, but we're often so steeped in our cultures we can't see those things. And it was finally overcome, slavery, in the West, not in other parts of the world, as the, on the basis of Christian teaching that grew out of Paul's understanding of what this means. So what is freedom for? That's the question we asked at the beginning, and we want to come back to that now. Paul wants Philemon to be, or Onesimus to be, free, to be free, but there are hints in this letter that Paul has a very different conception of what that freedom should be. He doesn't leave for instance, the decision up to Philemon so that Philemon can do whatever he pleases. He gives him the freedom to do the right thing. And Paul doesn't even want Onesimus to be set free so that he can do whatever he wants. We already noted that freed slaves continued to have obligations to their former masters. And Paul understood that. However, those obligations in the ancient world were based on this rigid social hierarchy, who, who's superior and who's inferior, and the need to show deference to social superiors. Paul wants to change the basis of that. He certainly doesn't say, oh, in the face of this social hierarchy, oh, that's silly, we want the church to be a place where no one feels any sense of obligation to anyone else, and everybody can do exactly as they please. Actually, setting Onesimus free would increase the obligation that Onesimus had to Philemon, to Paul, and even to the other Christians in Colossae. For instance, now he's a free man. Up until now, he was just part of Philemon's retinue. As a member, free member of the congregation, he would be expected to be paying a tithe, to be helping out, uh, offering his time and his energy for the good of others. So becoming free actually obligates him more to the congregation than it was before. And Paul wants ever, all of these actors to understand, and us too, that the basis for that obligation is not the social hierarchy, but something very different. Paul's answer to the question of what freedom is for is based particularly, and above all, on Christ's example, what we have in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, where Paul says, let's have this mind that we see in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form, by very nature is God, he humbled himself and took on a human form and became 
a servant, a slave, same word here, um, and served us. So, so much so that he was willing to die for us. Romans 13.8 says, Paul says to us, Owe nothing to anyone except love for each other. And I used to read that and I think, oh, that just means, um, I guess we don't owe anything to anyone, really. But now I think it means I really am obligated to my brothers and sisters. I owe them an ongoing debt of love because if you see, if we're serving each other, we're constantly in debt to each other in terms of this debt of love. They've helped us and we owe them that same kind of service in return. That's how Paul thinks about freedom. We've been set free from slavery to sin, not so that we can do whatever we want, but so that we can serve each other, placing others' needs above my own. Now that is really risky, and I bet some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound very good. I'm certain there are people out there who are gonna manipulate, they're gonna be giving more than they receive. Um, that is not uh, something that I really want to risk. I, admittedly, this will only work if churches are committed to it when we're in this together. And if that's the case, then actually we're all better off, right? Um, if I'm just acting the American way, then I look out for number one. So there's one person looking out for me, right? Um, if we follow Paul, then a hundred people are looking out for my needs, right? This is an idea, ideal, obviously. We'll not accomplish it before Christ comes again, I don't think, but we can strive for it. This is why God set us free, Christ set us free, to serve each other, to be there for each other. Let's consider, yet now in closing, what must have happened to Onesimus. This letter is, a, this interesting letter is a part of the New Testament, and many people along throughout church history said, why is it in there? There's no doctrine. It barely mentions God, um, and it has no important theological teachings. Why is it in there? Well, first of all, I don't think it would be in there if Philemon had refused to do what Paul had wanted him to do, if, if it was an example of um, kind of a failure on Paul's part. No, it must have accomplished what Paul wanted it to happen. And, um, and so I think Onesimus did come, become a free man. There's early church tradition that says that as well. And think of what happened, how the bonds that would, would have been strengthened between Paul and Philemon and Onesimus in the church because Philemon did the right thing. That's one reason why it's in there, to show us this. But it's also, I think, again, an example of serving others, of understanding, uh, if we get down to the bones of it all here, what God wants us to do and to be, why he has set us free in Christ. Everybody wins when uh, Philemon does the right thing and sets Onesimus free. Um, Onesimus certainly does. Philemon gains in respect from the congregation. Paul, again, comes, uh, is obviously an amazing counselor. And the church can rejoice in 
and a conflict that's avoided and more cohesion and understanding and love for each other. So, what do we do with this? You and I here in this country are doubly free. We live in a free country and that's wonderful privilege. And we have also been set free by Jesus. Think about what you can use your freedom for to do good to people around you, to serve others, to give, to help out people in need. Because when you do that, you're doing what Christ did for us. You will be living out the gospel that he brought and lived out among us, preaching the good news and dying for our sins so that we might be part of God's family. Amen.